Hi everybody, I'd like to welcome you to today's presentation. We're going to be talking about domestic dogs and some of the really exciting advances that have happened in the last few years because of both genetic and genomic studies that have gone on in man's best friend. So our topics for discussion today are as follows. We're first going to talk about determining the genomic architecture of modern dog breeds. We're going to talk about how we identify genes for traits that are under selection in the development of breeds, and we'll focus a lot on morphologic traits. And finally, we'll move it over to disease, and we'll be talking about studies of canine cancer. So let me just uh, go ahead and, and summarize a few things that we all need to know about dogs before we really dig into the data. First of all, I should make it clear that our lab is in a long-term partnership with dog owners, dog lovers, dog trainers, veterinarians, basically anyone who cares about dogs. We want to talk to you about what you're doing, what you know about dogs, and what samples you can provide from us. We collect and we bank DNA from all U.S. breeds and now many of the international breeds as well. So we don't breed dogs ourselves. We don't keep dogs in kennels. Ours is probably the largest collaborative experiment that's ever been done between scientists and the general public. Now, the American Kennel Club, also known as the AKC, currently recognizes around 190 different dog breeds. And each breed is a closed population. And that's an important concept because it means that in order to be registered as a member of that breed, your parents had to have been registered members of the breed and your grandparents and so on and so forth. So we get a lot of advantages at the genetic level from studying these closed populations. Now we do in human genetics as well. We study Icelandic pedigrees, Finnish pedigrees, Bedouin pedigrees, but they're only, uh, you know, a, a very small number of closed human populations, whereas we can see in dogs, we have literally hundreds. There are in fact over 400 dog breeds that are recognized worldwide. Now, these are some of my favorite dog breeds this week. If you were to ask me next week, I would probably put up a completely different set of breeds, but this is for this week. So three things to keep in mind during this talk. All domestic dog breeds are members of the same species, Canis familiaris, or sometimes called Canis lupus familiaris. Doesn't matter how different they look, and they look very different. Different breeds have amazing extremes of morphologic, diversity as well as disease susceptibility. They're still all members of the same species. And, and the fact that breeds have been genetically isolated in, in order to develop them into the dogs that we know today means that they also get a, a fair amount of disease. And there are certain diseases that we tend to see in excess in only a subset of breeds. And we'll be talking about that in the second half of today's presentation. So if you think about dog breeds as a whole, one easy way to, to kind of stick it in your mind is to remember that within a breed, there's a lot of homogeneity or sameness. There's a lot of sameness in terms of the genome sequence, and there's obviously a lot of sameness in terms of how these dogs look. So in this example here, we have lots and lots of different breeds, and we have multiple puppies from each breed, and you can see they really look very similar. But when we look between breeds, we see heterogeneity. The dogs look very different, 
and their genomes end up being much different as well. And that's going to be the basis of many of the things that we'll talk about today. Now, one of the questions I get asked most frequently is, how and when were modern breeds created? Well, domestic dogs um, were created, or they were domesticated, I should say, from wolves anywhere from 13 to 30,000 years ago. The intermediate canid dog wolf is, is not living on the earth today. So we have wolves, which were the progenitors, and we have domestic dogs, all right? Now, previous studies have struggled to address a variety of questions like, how were these modern breeds formed? What's the role of, of hybridizing different breeds or of immigration, bringing in different breeds and, and the movement of breeds from place to place? What role did those have in breed formation? And of course, when did it all happen? In fact, at a genetic level, we've struggled for many years to understand what exactly is a breed? So in recent years, Dana Drager in my lab has been working to answer exactly that question. I know this is a busy slide, but I'll, I'll take you through it in, in just a couple of steps. So what Dana has done is she's analyzed DNA from about 85 different dog breeds, and then she's used that data to ask the question, how many individual dogs of any given breed would I need in order to capture all the variation that exists in their genome? And, and you can see that she's got data for chihuahuas, um, for miniature poodles, um, for Shetland sheepdogs, um, as well as for the bull terrier. And down in the bottom panel is really where the data is that you want to look at. So if, if we're thinking about chihuahuas, well, we can capture most of that diversity just by looking or getting genome sequence from about 13 dogs. Miniature poodles, it's going to be about seven. Shetland Sheepdogs, it's going to be about 19. And then this Bull Terrier, it's going to be about 12. So this really speaks to the inbred nature of dogs. It takes very few individuals to capture most of the variation that exists in the, ge in the genome sequence. And that's going to turn out to be really useful and really important as we move on. Now, following on the heels of that, Heidi Parker wanted to understand how do all the different dog breeds relate one to another? I mean, just because dog breed A looks like dog breed B, are, are they in fact closely related? Did one derive from another? So to address that question, she used something called a SNP chip. SNPs are single nucleotide polymorphisms. They're points of variation in the DNA sequence. And she used a little chip these are little glass chips, and it had 170,000 SNPs that we could interrogate. Now remember, every SNP is going to have two alleles, the one you get from mom and the one you get from dad. Now she used these SNP chips to look at the DNA from 161 different breeds that varied in, in all possible ways. She also included a few wolves, and she included a few golden jackals as well. And then she took all of that data and she built what's called a neighbor joining tree that addresses population structure, breed formation, and eventually we'll use it for genome composition and trait mapping. And here's what it looks like. One slide, probably two years of work in my laboratory. So what are you looking at here? 
Well, we call this our wheel of life because we care about dogs. So this is a dog's life. Um, as you go around the circle, you're looking at different dog breeds. Now, we've only put pictures of, of a few breeds on here, but there are actually 161, and that's what all the little uh, black printing is that I know is very hard to read. And then we've, we've used mathematics to say, okay, which breeds are related one to another? And that's what the color coding is. So these 161 breeds actually divide or divide into about 23 different groups. And members of any one group are actually a set that are closely related. So over here in yellow, we have breeds like the Shiba Inu, we have the Akita, we have the Greenland Sled Dog, the Siberian Husky. So that's a group of breeds that are very closely related. And we can look uh, over, over uh, let's see, maybe down here. Um, and then we're gonna be looking at some of the hound dogs. And if we move over here, um, right over here, we're gonna be looking at some of the herding dogs. Now, why do we care so much about this? Well, here's why. Let's say I'm studying a complex disease like epilepsy. Care about it in dogs, we care about it in humans. And let's say that I'm gonna study it just in this one set of breeds, all right? The, the French Bulldog, let's say, is the one who walked into my veterinary clinic. Well, the French Bulldog is in this blue clade. And what that means is that everybody else in the blue clade probably got the disease because they share the same mutation from a recent common ancestor. So also in that blue clade are the Boston Terrier, the Bulldog, the Boxer, the Miniature Bull Terrier. So all of those that have epilepsy, they probably all have the same mutation. So suddenly, if I'm trying to find the gene for epilepsy, I have a lot more power to do so. Now, let's say I'm also gonna study it up here in the Terriers where the second blue arrow is. Well, I can make the same hypothesis. Let's say it's a Scottish Terrier that walked into my office. I can reasonably hypothesize that these other Terriers, the Cairn Terrier, um, the West Highland White Terrier, the Sky Terrier, any of those dogs that have epilepsy got it because they also share a recent common ancestor that's in that aqua uh, coloring. But it'll be different than what we saw in those bully dogs. And so this is a way for, for us to capture the multiple genes that are responsible for seemingly very complex diseases. We use this wheel over and over to devise our hypotheses, because this is what we go to to figure out which dogs we should put in which little grouping in order to do our genetic studies. So we can now take this data, and Heidi and Dana together have said, well, great, we know which breeds are most closely related to which other breeds, but can we tell when it happened? Can we tell when breeds were actually formed? Now, we know from historical records that most breeds have only been around for a few hundred years. In fact, most breeds were developed um, in Europe during the Victorian times. So how well can we unravel this? Well, it turns out using the exact same kind of data, we could unravel it pretty well using a concept called haplotype sharing. So a haplotype is a group of variants that are inherited together from a single parent. So at a given place in the genome, you'll have a haplotype from mom and you'll have a haplotype from dad. We look at something called identity by descent. So haplotypes are shared between individuals because they're inherited from a common ancestor. The longer the haplotype, 
the more recent the ancestor. We find that about 95% of median cross-clade sharing, so going across colors, um, is less than about 9 million base pairs. All right, so what does that mean practically? Well, if you look over to, to the panel, what you're going to see is that when we look over here in green, that's the amount of haplotype sharing we get when we look across clades, all right? Now, when we look within a clade at the purple, it's going to be more. And when we look within a single breed at the aqua, that's where it's going to be the most. So we can take advantage of that. And this is what the formation of dog breeds look like. So what are you looking at here? Well, you're looking at another one of our wheels of life, as we like to call this, but this is now a ribbon plot. And what each of those ribbons are telling you is what was mixed and matched to create each breed. So the color coding is the same as what you saw before, and the names of the breeds are the same as what you saw before, and they're in the same order. But everywhere there's one of these ribbons that crosses back and forth, that's telling you um, some breeds that got mixed and matched in, in order to form a, a particular breed. There's a lot of it, and that makes sense, because we know from records that a lot of breeds were in fact formed by mixing and matching different breeds and then selecting for very specific traits. So we can now use this data to figure out exactly when these breeds were formed. So um, let's go ahead and start up at the top. We now know, using that data, the same data you saw on the previous slide, that the Norfolk and the Norwich Terrier were divided into separate breeds. If you look on the, on the axis here, down at the bottom, uh, it's about 20 years ago. We know that the Eurasia began with a Chow Chow cross, and that happened about 40 years ago. The Irish Wolfhound, that's an interesting breed. It was recreated using the Scottish Deerhound and a Great Dane. Um, several years after the war, and, and we in fact know that that's something, again, when we look down, that happened about 70 years ago. Silky Terrier, that was created from our very favorite Yorkshire Terrier as well as the Australian Terrier. And we can even figure out really pretty complicated scenarios. So look at the bottom scenario. The Bulldog, the French Bulldog, the American Staffordshire Terrier, they all came together to form the Boston Terrier, and that's something that we know happened about 150 years ago. So this is very, very powerful data. It's really giving us a, a window in, into how all these dogs and all these breeds, in fact, were created that we see running around the dog park today. All right, how else can we use this data? Well, we can also use it to understand disease migration. So remember, when we first started talking, we talked about finding diseases in a single gene, uh, using a single dog breed. Um, and then we talked about using a whole clade. Um, now we can take advantage of what we know about breed formation to do the same. So I'll give you the example of CEA, which is called Collie Eye Anomaly. It's a recessive developmental disorder. It's reminiscent of several human diseases. It's caused by a failure of the optic vesicles um, to express growth hormone. And so that affects differentiation of other eye cells. You get choroid hypoplasia, hypoplasia you get scleropitting, you get retinal detachment. All right, so watch what happens when we look at the affected breeds. Wow, 
look at this. We can now trace the migration of this disease um, as it's migrated around the dog world. So it, it starts um, at the bottom um, over here um, with the herding dogs. In fact, our, our favorite collie over here was really the first one to get the disease. And that, that uh, breed generously shared it with all the other herding breeds. Um, and then it's migrated, right? We see it um, over here in the Boykin Spaniel. We see it further in the Nova Scotia Duck Tolling Retriever. And we see those breeds um, sharing with the Chinook, um, sharing with the Airedale Terrier. Um, and then finally, um, as we move all the way over, all the way over here, um, we see sharing with the Pug. So some of these breeds already have the disease. Some we suspect are going to get it pretty soon. And so if a dog walks into your veterinary office with an eye disease that you don't recognize, this would be the one to look for. So now we have a tremendous amount of power because we can take advantage of all this history in order to narrow down exactly not just where a gene is, but what the gene is and what the precise mutation is. All right. So we're going to go back in the second part and we're going to talk more about disease. We're going to focus a lot on cancer. But I thought since dog breeds look so different and the most common question I always get asked is, how can that be? How can they all be members of the same species and look so different? I thought it'd be fun to spend a little bit of our time on morphology. So um, this is one of my favorite pictures. This is a Harlequin Great Dane. Um, and down here at his feet, we have this little Chihuahua members of the same species. Isn't that amazing? So when we think about different dog breeds, we think about how they differ in body size and leg length and skull shape and fur length, texture, their bite position, the, the, the weight of their legs or thickness of their legs, ear position, so on. And, and in the past several years, I've been fortunate to have some very, very talented postdocs and graduate students who have studied and published on each one of these. Um, I'm just going to focus on a couple today. I'm going to talk first about fur. I had an amazing graduate student named Edward Cadu, and he came to my lab to study cancer, but it turned out that he was also studying fur, and I didn't really know this at first, um, but it turned out to be a spectacularly successful story. So he was interested in everything about fur. So the first thing he did was he found the gene that's responsible for those um, eyebrows and those mustaches that you see in that standard, uh, standard schnauzer, right? You don't see it on the other side in the Irish Sutter, of course. And it's due to an insertion in a gene called R-spondin-2 in the untranslated three prime region. So we think it's something that affects um, post-transcriptional regulation or maybe messenger RNA stability. So then he went to study long versus short fur. And he found that one of the primary things that was important in that was an alteration um, in a very highly conserved amino acid in the first exon of a gene called FGF5. So if you compare the long-haired Cocker Spaniel on the left and the very short-haired Whippet on the right, um, you can see that this is a pretty important gene. And then of course, we have to think about curl. So these are um, two different kinds of Portuguese water dogs. The one on the left just has a wavy coat and the black one on the right has a very, very tight curly coat. And that's caused by a mutation, again in a single amino acid, in a coating position, exon two, and this is in the gene keratin 71. So if you think about all the dogs that you see running around at the dog park, 
most of their variation in coat, with the exception of color, is going to be due to these three genes and the different combinations of these three genes. So this was just an amazingly clever story that Edward uh, figured out. And so, you know, I had to let him graduate and get his PhD and all that stuff after he finished all of this up. Now, the other thing that we've studied uh, quite a bit is body size, because really, that's one of the most striking things that we use to describe a dog breed. It's big, it's small, it's little, it's huge. So we've been interested in finding the genes that underpin that. Now, we began this story several years ago as a collaboration with Gordon Lark at the University of Utah and Kevin Chase. And they had a very large collection of DNA samples from Portuguese water dogs. But in addition to those samples, importantly, they had x-rays. And from those x-rays, they developed a set of about 92 metrics or measurements that we could use as phenotypes or traits to try and find the underlying genetics of. And so we did that. We scanned the entire genome, and we got this great hit this great um, signal that there was a single gene that was really important at this position. Now, I'll show you a lot of data um, that looks like this. If we look over here on the y-axis, that's a measure of significance. It's given as minus the log. And if we look down here um, at the x-axis, that's the position in megabases as we move along the chromosome. So this signals at about 44 megabases, or 44 million base pairs. Now, when Nate Sutter walked into my office with this piece of data, I knew we had it. So what Nate was doing was, in this region of the genome, he was comparing the heterozygosity, which we talked about, between large breeds and small breeds. And, and look what he found. He found that as you started your walk along the chromosome, you had this sort of baseline level of one. And then when you got to this position, it plummeted. And then when you moved through this position, it shot back up, and then it continued on, and then it continued on as one. So that told me unambiguously that where that big dip was was where this gene was. And indeed, that turned out to be true. It's a gene called IGF-1, or insulin-like growth factor 1. Now, if you were to be in my lab at Tuesday lab meetings, you would spend an awful lot of time looking at data like this. And I know you can't read the details. Don't worry about it. So what you're looking at here is a linear representation of IGF-1 gene. And everywhere you see a number, there's one of those SNPs. We talked about those single nucleotide polymorphisms. And down here are haplotypes, the different combinations of alleles that you can have. And, and there's about a dozen possible or even more haplotypes in this region across dogdom as a whole. But when you look just at small dog breeds, you don't find a dozen possible haplotypes. You just find one. You find this B haplotype. So that tells us something very important, that somewhere in this very small region is where the gene, or is where the mutation is um, in IGF-1. And because all small dogs, all small breeds, have the same haplotype, this is something that occurred a long time ago. It's very, very old. Now, we've since progressed our studies. We found several other genes that are important. So these include IGF-1, its receptor, growth hormone, HMGA2, STC2, and SMAD2. 
but the, the funny thing about this is when we first published this, we realized that mutations in these genes pretty much account for variation in small dogs, not in large dogs. Um, as a matter of fact, they account for about 60% of the variance in small dogs, but less than 5% of what we see in large dogs. So Joss Places in the lab decided to try and figure out what makes big dogs big, since we knew what made small dogs small. And he found that there were two loci on the X chromosome that were really very important, and they were located, oh, about a million base pairs away from each other. All right, this can be a, a kind of busy slide, so I'm going to go ahead and take you through it. So if we look over here on the y-axis, we're looking at weight in pounds. And if we look down here on the x-axis, what we're looking at are all those genes that I just mentioned to you, all right? And the first several of these are important in making small dogs small. And as you're going to see, these last two over here are important in making big dogs big, okay? So what's the color coding, the red and the yellow? Well, it measures derived allele frequency. So the derived allele is the one that we see in modern dogs, and that's coded red. The yellow is the ancestral allele. So that's the one that we see in the wolf population. So when you look at really small dogs at all of these genes, overwhelmingly the story is one of the derived allele. But as dogs get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, the breeds get bigger and bigger, we see very little red and we see mostly yellow. And, and that fits because wolves are big and in these big dogs we're seeing the, the wolf allele. Um, and, and, you know, the, the genes are informative until you get to about 90 pounds and then it's just a sea of yellow virtually. Nothing really is, is very informative. So Joss Places in the lab um, tackled those two loci on the X chromosome. And so the first is a, a mutation in a gene called immunoglobulin superfamily 1. Now we see that over here, okay, this first, uh, this first uh, red and yellow over here. Now we've had to flip our coding because now the derived allele is the one that makes you bigger than the wolf. So we see this derived allele in 90% of large breeds. We also see it in a subset of medium-sized breeds. It's strongly associated with being heavily muscled, and in humans, it's associated with obesity. Then there's acetyl-CoA synthetase, long-chain family um, member four. This causes a bulky phenotype. It's characterized by back, back, th back fat thickness and muscle. It has a role in lipid biosynthesis and fatty acid degradation. And in humans, when mutated, it causes insulin resistance. So understanding what these genes do is really helpful for studying various conditions in humans. And, and I put this here to, to make this point. This is the Great Dane. We would consider this a, a non-bulky breed, whereas this is the Mastiff, and this is a bulky breed. And I should say that ACSL4, we did not discover that first in dogs. It was actually discovered first in pigs, and it's responsible for the back fat that you see in pigs. So I love studying body size. You know, in humans, there are literally hundreds of places in the genome that account for variation in body size, whereas in dogs, there's only a few dozen. And that's going to be a reoccurring theme. Small numbers of genes account for a lot of variation. The genes that we've studied um, are in well-known pathways. They're associated with obesity in humans. And they, they present the question of why are some alleles only relevant in the presence of others? So various combinations matter more than each one singly alone. 
So this just gives you a, a brief summary of what we're talking about. If you're a wolf, um, you're not going to have the variant allele um, at any of these. Um, if you're a small dog, you'll have the variant allele um, at IGF-1. Over here, if you're one of these stocky breeds, IGF-1 and IGSF-1 if you're muscled and small. Over here, if you're a Great Dane, um, well, you're going to have these big alleles. You're certainly not going to have the small allele, but you won't have the bulky allele. And over here, if you're a Mastiff, you're going to have both um, the muscle allele as well as the bulky allele. All right, in the last two minutes, I'm just going to tell you about one more quick trait. This is chondrodysplasia. It's a breed-defining trait for about 20 domestic dog breeds. Um, these are the dogs like the, the Basset Hound, the Dachshund. The ratio of height to body length is less than one. Skeletal structure is heavy, well-boned, and the forelimbs are bowed or, or curved out. So we asked the question, do all these dogs have the exact same mutation, or is it like IGF-1 where there's a single ancient mutation? And what this is telling you is there's a single ancient mutation. So as we're looking along the, the genome, and each one of these represents a, a different chromosome, we're getting this great big signal with a p-value of 10 to the negative 102, and that's where the gene and the mutation are. It turns out the mutation is a retro gene. So it's a place where a gene has gotten rid of all of its regulatory machinery and introns, and the exons have gotten zipped together. And then whether and where the genes expressed are signals that it picks up from the genes around it. And so this is a retrogene in FGF4. Um, and these two panels here are, are giving you evidence of what they look like in a chondrodysplastic dog, the cDNA made from messenger RNA, and a non-chondrodysplastic dog. So we think overexpression of the RNA or the mistimed production leads to premature closure of the growth plates. So you have these otherwise normally proportioned dogs with these thick but very short limbs. And sure, we find um, dogs who have this all over the wheel, so we know this is a very ancient mutation. So this is going to conclude part one. What I hope you got out of this is that most breeds are created pretty recently, and we have the data in hand to figure out when and how. Um, genomic analysis really, really opens our eyes to all of that. And that most morphologic traits are controlled by a small number of genes of very large effect. And that's very different than what we see in humans. So in the second part, we're going to take some of the same data and we're going to apply it to studies of cancer. So please join us.